Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. This pandemic has wide-ranging repercussions. Are you one of the millions of Americans who filed for unemployment? If you rent, what protections exist to keep you from losing the place you call home? Today, where we live, we talk about how the pandemic could make the eviction crisis in our country worse. Coming up, we listen back to a conversation we had with sociologist Matthew Desmond, who wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction book, Evicted. First, Congress has yet to pass emergency rental assistance for Americans. If you live in Connecticut, what does that mean for you? Joining us now via Zoom is Greg Kirshner, legal director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center, where he litigates fair housing cases in, in state and federal courts. Greg, welcome to the show. Good morning. I wanted to start off, we just had Governor Ned Lamont on yesterday, Monday, on Where We Live, and I asked him about rent being due and what protections there were for renters who may not be able to pay their bills. They worry about eviction. And this is what the governor told us. Lucy, we were very clear that no evictions are allowed. Uh, I think that extends at least another month and maybe beyond, depending on where we are on on COVID. And uh, I've got to make sure that people know that... um, your electricity can't be cut off. Your cable can't be cut off. Your um, uh, your rent, you cannot be evicted, you know, provided you were in good standing before COVID. I think uh, these are really important to make sure that we are able to get back on our feet on the backside of this crisis. And Greg, he went on to point out that the courts are closed, meaning that eviction proceedings are on hold. So from your perspective, respond to how the governor framed this. Has the state done enough to protect people who are worried about, again, being evicted because they can't pay the rent? They lost their job. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think we, we can all recognize that the governor in the state of Connecticut did take a lead in protecting tenants at the start of the coronavirus. And that was recognized nationally uh, by extending deadlines for payment of rent and, uh, and stopping evictions until July 1st. And I understand the governor wanting to assure people uh, in this time of uncertainty. Uh, but we, we do face the fact that the uh, the extensions on rent have now ended. Uh, June rent is due now. Um, rent that was deferred in April is now due. Um, rent that was deferred in May is going to be due, due July 1st, along with July rent. And uh, evictions can start again at this point on July 1st. So there, there's going to be a lot of anxiety among the many people who, uh, through no fault of their own, cannot meet their rental obligations because of the effects of the pandemic. Um, so we're we're hopeful that the state will extend the eviction moratorium and more importantly, take steps to uh, apply some of the coronavirus relief funding to the uh, eviction uh, potential eviction crisis and provide some assistance to stabilize the rental market. 
I understand that there was some funding in the CARES Act, but that doesn't necessarily help all Americans who worry about, again, not being able to pay the rent. I believe it only helps one in four families that may qualify to receive help. And so then I guess the question, Greg, is what then? What kinds of steps? I mean, you mentioned that the state could take uh, to help Connecticut residents, but what, what else is happening on the federal level? Well, in the federal level now, there's there's not a lot of clarity. The House of Representatives passed a bill that would include a significant amount of funding for uh, rental assistance and to assist states and municipalities with the burdens that they've encountered with uh, the coronavirus. But uh, it doesn't seem like there's much of a path forward uh, for that bill. So we don't know what else is going to be coming down from uh, from Congress from the federal level. Uh, on the state level, you know, there there was uh, the, the CARES Act was passed, and that included uh, a significant amount of money uh, that states have a good deal of discretion on how they use. Um, Connecticut got, I think, about $1.4 billion that they could use for various purposes, including for rental assistance for people impacted by the coronavirus. And we've seen in a number of states uh, the application of that money to rental stabilization programs, rental assistance programs. Uh, Vermont, Montana, New Jersey, Illinois, just a, a few of the states that have applied significant tens of millions uh, of dollars to the problem. So we, we would definitely like to see Connecticut uh, begin taking steps to, to implement programs like that. Hmm. We know that we're in a public health crisis, but when we talk about housing security for people who may, again, uh, start to get eviction notices or eviction proceedings starting up again in Connecticut July 1, this is really serious because if people aren't able to stay in their homes and they then aren't, aren't able to be in a place that's safe for them, that they can even remain socially distant from others, Greg. Absolutely. If, if- Folks are going to shelter at home, shelter in place. They need to have a home to shelter in. And uh, you know, really the, the worst thing that we could do at this point in time is to uh, have people enter uh, homelessness, people double up, triple up with family and friends, people wind up in the shelter system. You know, to its credit, the state took great efforts to get people out of shelters so that they could socially distance at the start of the coronavirus. And uh, to simply go back to having people enter the shelter system um, because of the impacts of the coronavirus would, would really undo a lot of that good work. And this is really a, a, a perfect example of an ounce of prevention is worth many pounds of cure. It's a, a lot more efficient, effective, and, and cost-effective to assist folks with rent now to avoid the disruption to their families, disruption to the, the economy of the state, um, and and to, to pay to deal with those impacts with schools, with social services, with uh, increased uh, spread of the coronavirus. So uh, it's really important that we get this right, and we get this right now. You're hearing Greg Kirshner on Zoom. He's legal director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center, again, where he litigates fair housing cases in the state and federal courts as we talk about uh, how the eviction crisis in America could worsen because uh, in this pandemic, so many Americans have lost their jobs. They're going to have trouble uh, paying the rent. Are you one of them? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to bring into the conversation now Josh Mictum. He's a Hartford City Council member, and he's actually part of this cancel rent movement. Josh, welcome to our show. Hey, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. So tell me a little bit more about the movement. This this didn't just start last week. You've been doing this over the last few months. And when we say cancel rent, exactly what are you talking about? So the, no, the, the issue, and I think I agree with almost everything that, um, that Greg said, is mm-hmm. that 
we have this looming crisis, and then the question is, how do we solve it uh, best, right? And uh, the focus of the cancel rent movement is to say people who are renting economically are the most vulnerable. They're the least likely to have savings or other assets. Uh, and so to if, if when we get to the part where we give some relief, what we say is every one of you has to apply and prove that you have a certain income and prove your hardship, we're really putting the burden in the wrong place. And so if we start by saying everyone who hasn't paid rent during the pandemic because they couldn't is just off the hook, and then we turn to the landlords who also have burdens but who also have some assets and some resources and who got a lot more relief from the CARES Act, it makes more sense to let them seek state relief than the people who are already the most precarious. Mm. I would add that for a lot of undocumented people, there's an additional problem whether or not the state tries to serve them there's so much fear around seeking any kind of state assistance um, that those folks will get left out if they have to individually seek help Mm. when you talk about the cancel rent movement you mentioned landlords being part of the solution you're also calling for a rent relief fund to help landlords uh some many of them being small property owners josh Right, because I mean, any time we talk about evictions, we're talking about cascading effects on communities, right? If we have small landlords can't collect rent, they're facing foreclosure. Mm-hmm. And then if you have both an eviction and a foreclosure crisis, you're looking at outside investors and then out-of-town landlords, which is a problem that cities wrestle with. So I think we're saying, yes, there needs to be cash assistance from the state, but the point where the assistance should go into the system is at the landlords because they're better suited to seek the assistance. We certainly don't want to leave them high and dry. Mm. Greg Kirshner, uh, can you uh, respond to what Josh McDum is talking about? Councilman Josh McDum. Yeah, I think that we, we are we are in agreement. Uh, our organization and, and legal services organizations across the state uh, support a program that would require landlords to apply um, and have the state be the the the, the middleman, the the, uh, the neutral arbiter to, to figure out what a, a fair amount of compensation for the landlord would be. Um, and and landlords would, would then not be able to evict tenants um, uh, for non-payment of rent during this period. And, and that's really a key thing is that all this needs to happen before any eviction papers are filed, uh, as I'm sure will be discussed and uh, in, in when you replay the interview with Matt Desmond. The filing of eviction has terrible impacts, mm-hmm. long-lasting impacts on individuals. Uh, potentially for the rest of their lives as they seek housing. So uh, we can't have have folks uh, be burdened with that just because we've had a, a you know a natural disaster of this magnitude uh, interrupt people's ability to to meet their rental payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg, we know that COVID nineteen has really highlighted disparities for communities of color in Connecticut and around our nation. Disproportionate uh, number of them dying and contracting this disease. But yet, again, when we look at housing security, these communities of color also impacted. A data haven shared census data recently that shows uh, COVID-19-related inequities. Uh, 46% of Latinos, 38% of Black uh, renters have no or slight confidence in their ability to pay this month's rent uh, compared to just uh, 22% of white renters. Again, uh, are we hearing at all from our Connecticut delegation about how they can help Connecticut residents who are struggling right now? Well, in terms of a, a, a federal response, as I said, that there, there's been some discussion and the House, the House of Representatives passed a bill. Um, 
but but you make a really important point is that um, this crisis is just exacerbating existing problems in the housing market and in society. Uh, people of color have uh, been uh, live with the effects of of generations of segregation and discrimination that have uh, left them with fewer resources and and, and lower net worth. Um, and the data shows that nationally and in Connecticut, uh, people of color are twice as likely to. Um, be faced with eviction sometime in their life. Um, it's particularly bad for single mothers. Uh, so, you know, this crisis uh, potentially will, will, will have even greater impacts on the community that's suffered the most from the coronavirus, both in terms of deaths, in terms of job loss, in terms of income loss. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's obviously a great concern for all of us. Councilman Mictum, um, if you're still there, I just wanted to ask you uh, briefly, uh, the people that you've been talking to and meeting with over the last two months who were part of this cancel rent movement, are these are the same people that Greg has described? Um, to a certain degree. I mean, there's definitely representation from uh, the different legal aid organizations around the state that do housing work. And there's also a number of community activists, folks who have done activism in the undocumented community. Uh, so it's really a cross-section, and it's folks from Bridgeport, New Haven, Hartford, all over. Mm. And before we end the segment, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this uh, cycle of poverty, the fact that evictions, it's not just about losing your home in the present, but the, the long-term repercussions on communities, Greg. Uh, can you sum it up for us? Well, as I said, uh, if you have an eviction filed against you, it can follow you for, for years, decades, for the rest of your life. Um, and sometimes if you have eviction filed against someone with a name similar to yours, it can follow you uh, for the rest of your life. So, um, you know, the, the, the proliferation of uh, data sharing and, and use of data to screen tenants uh, has created a lot of impediments to people being able to make good moves for their family and access good housing. So. Uh, we need to do everything we can to reduce the number of evictions filed and uh, make sure that tenants have a, a fair chance at securing the housing that they need. Mm. And we talk about uh, the consequences following people. Eviction records can affect their credit, their uh, housing search options, their ability to get public aid. Uh, some states, their wages can be garnished. They lose the ability to gain property uh, years later and pushes families into uh, deeper disadvantaged and worse neighborhoods. Uh, I want to uh, thank again Greg Kirshner for calling in and being on the show, legal director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Also, Hart for Councilman Josh Mictum on the phone today talking about the cancel rent movement here in our state. Coming up after the break, we're going to listen back to my conversation with sociologist Matthew Desmond, whose book, Evicted, started a national conversation about America's eviction crisis. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the threat of housing insecurity for residents in Connecticut and across the country. 
the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated an already precarious situation for the millions of Americans who are just one paycheck away from losing their homes. Since the Great Recession, much attention has been focused on homeowners whose homes were underwater or worth less than what they owed on it. Millions of homes went into foreclosure. The recession led to a lot of demand on the rental market, so supply was low and the rents stayed high. But there's another story to the housing crisis, and that involves the millions of Americans who have faced eviction time and time again. Today, we're listening back to a conversation I had with sociologist Matthew Desmond in 2018. Desmond is the author of Evicted, a book that centers on eight families in Milwaukee who struggled to find housing. In 2017, Evicted was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction. Desmond is also the principal investigator of the Eviction Lab at Princeton University. He says eviction is not a condition of poverty, but the cause of it. So I started by asking Desmond to explain how widespread the problem of eviction is across the country. Well, we didn't know. Uh, You know, we don't have national data on eviction. It's not collected um, by the American government. So basic questions remain unanswered. It's kind of like, you know, not knowing how many car accidents happen every year or how many students drop out of high school. So one thing that my research team and I have tried to do is build the nation's first ever data set of eviction in America. And by our calculations, about 2.3 million people lived in homes that received an eviction judgment in 2016. 2.3 million. So how big is that? You know, how big of a problem is that? So that's about twice the number of folks who get arrested for drug crimes, for example. That's 36 times the number of overdoses we saw in that year. It's in a giant, deep problem. It's affecting communities all across the country, not only on the coasts, but in the middle of the country, in the south. It's not just in our big cities either. It's in our suburban and rural towns. You mentioned uh, the number of evictions in 2016. How has this number increased over the years? And what was the reason behind the jump? So there's three ingredients to the housing crisis. You know, incomes for Americans of modest means have been very flat over the last two decades, but housing costs have soared all across the country. So by one estimate, between 1995 and today, median rent has increased by over 70%, adjusting for inflation. So families are just seeing, you know, their incomes stay flat, but their housing costs go up and up and up. And the federal government really hasn't stepped in to help. You know, so only about one in four families who qualify for any kind of housing assistance receive it. The unlucky majority receive nothing. And they are left to spend most of their income in the private market on rent and utility costs. Today, most poor renting families spend at least half of their income on housing. And about one in four spend over 70% of their income just on rent and utilities. That has brought us to a place where eviction, which used to be rare in the early years of the 20th century, for example, used to draw crowds, be scandalous. We've gone from that place to a place where eviction has become incredibly commonplace in the lives of low-income families today. Mm. If it's become so commonplace, why is it that uh, we don't know a lot about evictions? Until you wrote this book, there wasn't a conversation about what was happening across our country. What are the the attitudes towards uh, when people hear someone's been evicted, uh, the preconceived notions, the stereotypes of that person? One reason, well, some some of us did know about evictions. You know, some of us were affected by it and um, and saw our communities overturned by it. Uh, but a lot of us didn't. And one of the reasons was, you know, you know, the housing crisis has gotten a lot worse since 2000. And so in the 90s, 
we were focused as a nation on welfare reform. We were focused on mass incarceration. Those are incredibly important issues when it comes to inequality today. But there was something missing from our picture, and that, that was housing. And I think this is a moment where the voices of uh, tenants and uh, legal aid lawyers are, are elevated. And a lot of us are waking up to an issue that they've long been knocking the doors down on. I do think that evicted families do confront um, a stereotype from well-fed Americans that, that say, oh, they just didn't uh, pay the rent, you know, they were irresponsible or they're lazy. There's another kind of stereotype, too, toward landlords to say, you know, oh, they're just greedy. They want all the money that they can. And I think if you look hard at the situation, you realize that it's much more complicated. When you're paying 70 or 80 percent of your income on rent, a very small thing can get you evicted. For folks in that situation, eviction is much more the result of inevitability uh, than irresponsibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, you wrote this book, Evicted. You focused on eight families in the Milwaukee uh, city of Milwaukee. Why, why this city? And how did you, uh, I guess, get access to these people that they were comfortable speaking with you? I thought that the story of the American city tended to be written on the margins. You know, we had a lot of books about our big cities, you know, New York and L.A. and Chicago. And we had a lot of books about cities that are usually kind of portrayed as some of our worst cases. This is not a portrayal that I agree with, but these are cities like Detroit. But there are all these cities, you know, that, that uh, fill up the American landscape, St. Louis and Cleveland and Milwaukee, that are often left out of our conversations. And I thought that writing about Milwaukee would give me a shot at representing better the experiences of families in New Haven or Hartford or um, St. Louis or Cincinnati than it would if I, if I focused on one of these exceptional but very you know, different kinds of cities um, that we hear a lot about. And to your second question about, you know, how to get in, I think that when you start this work, you kind of realize that the, the harder problem isn't getting in, it's leaving, you know? And a lot of families are incredibly open about their lives and generous. And I've slept on their floors and ate from their tables and met their friends and their children. And I've gone to church with them and work with them. And when you you know, embed yourself in the lives of folks like that, you make friends, you know, you have love for them. And I think leaving Milwaukee was much harder than starting. But it doesn't mean that starting was easy either. So some folks I met kind of were very open from day one, and others had a lot more suspicions, and I had to take it much more slower and go forward and go back with those folks. I remember there was a time when I was living in the trailer park, I was talking to someone and um, a guy came up to the guy I was talking to and was like, you know, don't talk to this guy. He's a spy for the city. And at the time, the trailer park was being really scrutinized by the city of Milwaukee and everyone living in there thought it would be shut down and they wouldn't have a place to live. And so I said, you know, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a writer, you know, and he's like, well, show me the books you've written. <laughs> and I was like, I don't carry the books around with me. You know, I, I don't have them, but we can look them up on the internet. And he said, I don't have the internet. I work for a living. Mm. And so in my head, I'm like, gosh, this is really not going great. And so I, I called around to local bookstores. Of course, they didn't have any of my books. Uh, so I checked one out from the local library and went back to his place and showed it to him. And then he made me a ham sandwich and we talked well into the night. And so I think there are things like that come up all the time, and it's kind of awkward, difficult work. Um, but it's also work that leaves you with the deep impression that people do want to share their stories, and they want people to really listen to them. 
I wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, some of the people that you profiled in your book, uh, Matthew, and something that you, when you when you read this book, you realize a lot of the, the low-income families that you're profiling, they're living in private uh, apartments, not public housing as, as uh, people might think uh, that's um, segregated for people who don't have make a lot of money. Can you talk us through or walk us through um, some of the, the families that you met and their situations? Sure. But I think your your frame is really important. I think that a lot of us still imagine that the typical low-income family lives in public housing or gets some other kind of help from the government mm-hmm. when it comes to making rent. But the opposite is true. The typical low-income family today all across America lives in the private market and spends most of their money not on their children but on their uh, their rent and their utility costs. You know, the waiting list for public housing in our biggest cities is now counted in decades. So, you know, I have two young kids. If I applied for public housing today in Washington, D.C., I'd probably be a grandfather, you know, by the time my application came up for review. So that's the situation. And so when I was meeting people like uh, Lorraine, who was my neighbor in the trailer park, and this was a grandma uh, who uh, got by on a small disability check that was spending over 70% of her income to rent a mobile home in a place that was considered an environmental biohazard at the time by the city. Uh, I met a young woman named Vanetta, and she was trying to raise three young kids in the inner city. And she was working at Old Country Buffet, and her hours got cut. And she was so terrified of losing her home and maybe her children that she committed an armed robbery uh, to try to make the rent. This was someone without a criminal record. You know, I think of someone like Arlene, who was a single mom, right, raising two young boys and was spending 88% of her income just on rent when we met. And you see her story throughout the book bouncing from you know one place to the next in just house after house that she can't afford, even in the poorest nooks and crannies uh, of a poor city. Uh, you mentioned uh, some of these places were substandard. How is that legal for landlords to rent out property that uh, you and I, you know, we wouldn't want to raise our families in? It's not legal, but laws cost money. So imagine you're Arlene. You're spending 88% of your income on rent. And so you find another home and your landlord, you find a landlord that will take you despite your long eviction record. And so I remember spending one time with Arlene where she had to call 90 uh, landlords before one said yes. So imagine that long, exhausting fight. And um, so you finally get into a place and the landlord says, I need first month's rent, last month's rent, and security deposit. So you're Arlene, you can't do that. You know, you can barely make first month's rent. So the landlord says, you know, I'll work with you. You work with me. So when the plumbing goes out or the ceiling caves in, you could call your landlord. You can report your landlord to the city. But you know that if you do that, you might get evicted. Not because it's legal to evict someone that makes that call. It's not. But because landlords could always evict someone if they're behind on rent. So the housing crisis um, encourages situations where, you know, tenants kind of can trade their health and their kids' dignity um, for a roof over their head, you know, for substandard conditions. 
Uh, we meet uh, several different families, as I mentioned, but you also follow a landlord, uh, Sharina, I believe. Can you tell us about her and, and how, when we talk about this housing crisis, it is a, a complex uh, situation in, in cities and communities around our country. Um, from one side, you have people that are looking to find a home. You have others that are offering uh, a place for someone to live, and there's a lot of complexity there. Tell us a little bit about Sharina, because when we read about her, um, you know, at times you want to sympathize, and other times you're angry with this woman when you see how some of her tenants are treated. I mean, if that's your response to Sharina, I feel like I did an okay job. <laughs> and I think that, you know, my job was to try to write people in their full complexity, um, landlords and tenants alike. And I think that we see Sharina, who had only been a landlord for four years, who kind of was a self-starter, kind of built a little small real estate uh, empire uh, by herself. She was a public school teacher before. She owned 36 units. All of them were in inner city Milwaukee, and she was proud of her work. And you see her at turns, right? Like you mentioned, working with tenants, buying tenants groceries, uh, loving on tenants, counseling tenants. And then you see her at other turns um, uh, being kind of callous and hard and evicting tenants uh, and um, even, even you know, in the, in the dead of winter. And so I think that what Sharina does is also like shine a mirror onto what, what many of us face in our lives. You know, poverty isn't innocent. You know, there are winners and losers on the American field. And sometimes there are losers because there are winners. And I think that when you look at Sharina and you ask, you know, how is her prosperity related to her tenants' poverty? We also have to ask that about ourselves, no matter who we are, about how our kids' safety and schools and neighborhoods' tax benefits are connected to the lack of those for, for many uh, unfortunate uh, Americans. Another point that you make in Evicted from following uh, these uh, residents in Milwaukee, um, we know how mass incarceration impacts black men. But when we go, when we go with you to eviction court, uh, who are the people that are disproportionately impacted uh, by eviction? And that's uh, African-American women. Right. So eviction affects the young and the old. It affects the sick and the able body. But, you know, the face of this crisis is moms with kids, you know, and if you go into about any housing court around the country, you just see a ton of kids, you know, until recently, the South Bronx in New York City had an eviction court with a daycare in it, in it you know, because there were just so many kids coming through its doors every day. And low-income African-American women, and especially mothers, are evicted at incredibly high rates. You know, among Milwaukee renters, one in five black women reports being evicted sometime in her life compared to one in 15 white women. And that statistic, I think, should trouble us because it does mean that eviction is something like the feminine equivalent to incarceration. It does mean that many of our low-income African-American men are being swept up in the long arm of the criminal justice system. They are being locked up. But many of our low-income African-American women are being locked out, and they are disproportionately bearing the brunt of this crisis. Uh, you mentioned children. Uh, when you read the book, you might think, well, uh, maybe a landlord would be more uh, sympathetic to uh, a, a woman with children and, and helping them find a place to live. But that actually isn't the case, uh, that children are seen as a liability. You know, I saw this myself in talking with landlords where they would say, you know, kids cause us headache. You know, and kind of um, and kind of make make comments like that. But we also see this in statistical studies we did too. So we conducted a study in Milwaukee eviction court, 
because we were trying to figure out why do you get evicted but the person right next to you doesn't, even though you owe your landlord the same amount. And what we found was what made the difference wasn't it wasn't race, it wasn't your gender, it wasn't even how much you owed your landlord. It was kids. The chance of you getting evicted triple in court, all else equal, if you live with kids. And what you're seeing in that finding is landlord discretion. You're seeing a lot of landlords say, you know, I'll work with you, but not with you. Because, you know, kids flush toys down the toilet and they, you know, rip the curtains down and use them for superhero capes. And they can test positive for lead poisoning. They can affect the landlord's bottom line. Family discrimination is illegal, but many of us don't even recognize it as a form of discrimination. So you're right. You know, kids do not shield families from eviction. They often expose families uh, to eviction. And Matt, once someone is evicted, how does that eviction follow them throughout their life? Right. So you lose your home. And if that isn't bad enough, you often lose your stuff, your things, your possessions, which are piled on the sidewalk or taken by movers to be kind of locked into bond and storage. Your kids lose their school. You often lose your community and your neighborhood connections. It takes a good amount of time and money to establish a home, and eviction can just delete all that. Um, Eviction often comes with a mark, you know, a, a record, a court record, and that can prevent you from moving into good housing and a safe neighborhood because many landlords just say no, you know, when you have that record, but can also prevent you from moving into public housing because many of the folks that run our public housing authorities, even though they don't have to, count eviction as a mark against your application. So it means we're systematically denying help to families that need it the most. So we push those families into slum housing, and we push those families into dangerous neighborhoods. We have a study that shows that eviction causes job loss. And if any of your listeners out there have been evicted, they know why. It's such a consuming, stressful event. It causes you to make mistakes at work and lose your footing in the labor market. And then there's the effect that eviction has on your soul, you know, your mental health. We have a study that shows that moms who get evicted experience higher rates of depression two years later. And so you step back and add all that up, and I think we have to conclude that eviction isn't just a condition of poverty. It's also a cause of poverty. It's making things worse, and it's leaving a deep and jagged scar on the next generation. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond. His book, Evicted, won the Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction in 2017. It explores the housing and poverty crisis in America. After the break, we're going to hear how his reporting on poverty in Milwaukee has launched a project to study evictions nationwide. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're listening back to my conversation with sociologist Matt Desmond and Aaron Kempel, president of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center, about the consequences of America's eviction epidemic. Access to health care is viewed more and more as a right, not a privilege. But what about access to housing? Should everyone be afforded the right to quality, affordable housing, no matter their background? Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond explores that question in depth in his book, Evicted. He's also the principal investigator of the eviction lab at Princeton University. I asked him to talk about how the lab investigates rates of eviction across the country. So after the book came out, I'd go around the country and I'd talk to folks in Houston or Baton Rouge or Kansas City, and they'd say, how are we doing? You know, what's our eviction rate? Where are evictions happening in our city? And I'd say, I have no idea. I'd meet people in rural America and they'd say, I'm seeing this in my community. What do we know about rural evictions? I'd say, we know nothing. And, you know, we didn't have a national database 
of evictions. And so community organizations have worked hard to catalog and capture and map evictions on a local level, and their efforts are valued, but we didn't have a, a, a big kind of national picture. And so, you know, my team and I set out to try to do that. And we uh, have worked um, to collect over 80 million eviction records from all across the United States going back to 2000 and sometimes further. And we've cleaned these records and validated them and mapped them and we've put them uh, on a website called evictionlab.org. So your listeners can go to our website. They can click on a map of the United States. They can click on Connecticut. They could look at cities where they live in and see if evictions are going up and down, where the eviction is happening in their own communities. They can compare Hartford to uh, Providence, for example, and other cities in the re- region and download the raw data and, and use it. So our position was, you know, here's more eviction data than we've ever had. It's yours. Use it and, and help us make it better. The I guess the uh, challenge with uh, this data is the I guess the undercounting uh, of evictions and when the ones that don't go formally to court. Um, how how should communities try to address uh, these informal actions that happen towards tenants, Matthew? Right. So there's two kinds of undercounting that we confront. The first kind is that we don't have every single formal court ordered eviction in America. We have states that have low counts, and we flag those states. If you know, there have been folks all around the country that have said, okay, it looks low in my area. Let me help you get data. And we've been so uh, thankful and grateful for those partnerships. Then there's this other kind of uh, undercount, which is the one you mentioned, the informal evictions. And these are forced displacements from housing that never go through the inside of a courtroom. So in Milwaukee, you know, I met a landlord that will say, you know, if you're out by Sunday, I'll give you 200 bucks to move and you can use my van. That's a pretty good eviction if you got to get evicted, you know. I met another landlord who will just take your door off or change your locks or turn your electricity off to get you out. And so there are a lot of ways to displace a family that never are processed or seen to the courtroom. In Milwaukee, we found that for every formal eviction that happens, there are at least two that don't. So what can we do about that? So we've worked with the American Housing Survey to capture informal evictions on a national level, and those data will be released very soon. And I think that will give us a great picture of kind of the ratio of formal evictions to informal or shadow evictions. But community organizations can work hard on this, too. I understand Eviction Lab has looked at Hartford. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of eviction rates and how we compare nationwide? So uh, Hartford uh, has a uh, 5.7% eviction rate. That means about one in 18 renter homes are evicted in Hartford every single year. That's higher than Milwaukee. I think that's about 29th in the national uh, picture. So Hartford breaks the top 30. It's a fairly high rate. It's about 3.4% higher than the national average. And I believe Waterbury in uh, Connecticut has an even higher rate uh, than the city of Hartford. I wanted to bring into our conversation now Aaron Kempel, executive director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, how do you react when you hear that uh, in Hartford uh, the eviction rate is twice that of the national average? And what's the work that you're doing to help tenants? So it didn't surprise me that we have very high rates of eviction in 
all over Connecticut and in Hartford in particular. What we really were interested in in my office was the idea of using the fair housing laws to try to change the way evictions are seen when people go to look for another apartment. So the idea that the majority of people being evicted are families with children or African-American women um, means that eviction might have a disparate impact on people of color or people who have children, and that would violate the fair housing laws. So using some of the techniques that Professor Desmond used in his book, we have bought all of the eviction data in Connecticut going back to 1997 and currently are uh, examining that to see if there is a disparate impact in the eviction. And if so, one of the things that we would like to advocate for is a case-by-case analysis of an eviction record. Um, So we've really been inspired a lot by the work that Professor Desmond did to try and change things here in Connecticut. Um, I received a tweet. Uh, Someone wants to hear ideas on what to do when a tenant doesn't pay rent. And so that's the flip side of this conversation. Uh, A lot of people that are um, stuck in this vicious cycle. But then there's the landlord who wants their bill paid. And so how do we navigate that, Erin? I'll start with you. So it's not even just that the landlord wants their bill paid. They need to be paid the rent in order to pay their own bills, to be able to pay the mortgage, to be able to keep the lights on or keep the property maintained. And so it's very understandable that that is a a problem. But one of the things that we're seeing in Connecticut is gentrification. And so it's not just that the $1,500 or $2,000 that some people are paying goes to pay the utilities or the upkeep of the unit. But in some cases, it's just pushing the market up so that people, the rents are going higher, even when they're not needed to be pushed higher just to make the landlord's bills to get paid. So it's difficult. It's a difficult situation because um, the rents, the the market will bear higher payments at the same time that tenants um, who are low income can't afford to pay that. I wanted to go back to Matt Desmond again, professor of sociology at Princeton University. He wrote this book, Evicted. Uh, did you want to add to that this, this question of you know the, the landlord's responsibilities as well? Sure. I mean, landlords don't get paid when they evict someone. It's not like the sheriff comes and throws a family out and then hands landlords $500. So I think that there are a million things that we can do between a non-payment of rent and an eviction that's better for the family, it's better for the community, and it's better for the property owner. For example, you can imagine a court where the family goes in and the judge asks, why are you being evicted? Now, that might not sound a radical question to you and your listeners, but it probably sounds really radical to Aaron because in many housing courts, courts, you know, what the judge says is, are you behind? And if you say yes, it really doesn't matter what you say after that. And so in a community court, the judge says, why are you behind? And you can say, I lost my job or I relapsed. My kid got sick. I had to pay for a funeral, whatever. And there are full-time social workers in the courtroom that are helping the property owner get paid, helping the tenant stay, and helping address the underlying root causes that caused the lapse of payment in the first place. That is a court system that functions as an instrument of justice, not just an eviction processing plant, which is our status quo today. Uh, Aaron Kempel with uh, Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Uh, you know, this question of a right to counsel in civil matters, that's not something that's a guarantee in civil, in, in housing court, but in criminal court, you do have that right. That's absolutely right. And I, when I first started my legal career back in 1985, I remember talking to a housing court judge and saying, well, you know, at least people won't get locked up if I lose the case. And he said, no, 
they'll just lose, they'll just be homeless and uh, not have any place to live and not be able to take care of their kids. But if they're locked up, they'll have three meals a day and a free place to live. So which do you think is worse? Uh, again, this is where we live. Uh, today, we're looking at the crisis, uh, the housing crisis in this country, uh, and how it's intertwined with our, our poverty uh, in uh, in the U.S. Uh, with us from Princeton University is Matthew Desmond, professor of sociology, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Evicted, also principal investigator at the Eviction Lab. In studio with me, Aaron Kempel, executive director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Uh, Matt, one of the uh, proposals that you offer up uh, near the end of the book is, you know, how we can uh, make this system uh, more equitable. And you talk about um, the federal um, housing vouchers, how um, they've been proven to be an effective anti-poverty program. But there's still plenty of people on the waiting list, as you mentioned. Right. And it's not because those people don't qualify for aid or hasn't fulfilled some sort of duty. It's because we just don't have enough of it to go around. The good news is that when families finally receive a housing voucher after years and years on the waiting list, when they finally receive this ticket that allows them to pay only 30% of their income on rent instead of 60 or 70, they do one consistent thing with their freed up money. They buy more food. You know, Their kids become healthier. They don't move as much. They move into better neighborhoods. They can root down in a home. They work. But the vast majority of our low-income families aren't so lucky, and their kids like literally don't get enough to eat because the rent eats first. Mm. You know, I think that housing vouchers for me are one way to tackle the affordable housing crisis. But this is a crisis that can be tackled in a lot of different ways. And I think it's very important to listen to our, our local leaders on this, to listen to folks like Aaron. Uh, a lot of this work is just local, you know, block by block work. The one thing I do have to say with regards to housing vouchers is that for most places in the country, it is permissible for landlords to discriminate against people who have housing choice vouchers to say, I don't want to rent you because you have a voucher. In Connecticut, that's illegal. And as a result of that, people are better able to find housing, although we find that discrimination goes on. In fact, it's the second highest number of complaints that we receive each year. Mm. Um, Mm. But that is another thing that would help alleviate the eviction crisis. Uh, there's an, another uh, part to this uh, story of how uh, people are able to get help. Obviously, um, having uh, legal representation is important, but there's grassroots efforts that are happening, including uh, in the city of Hartford, a group of residents who lived in the Clay Arsenal apartments in the city, uh, the Hartford Current Report, that they took on their absentee landlord and won. I want to hear a little bit about this story. Joining us now is one of those residents, Milagros Ortiz. Milagros, welcome to the show. Good morning. So tell us uh, how you and some other tenants banded together. You had this absentee landlord. Uh, what were some of the issues that you were facing, and how did you get some relief? All right, well, so, um, a couple of our issues was the simple fact the lack of communication with our property manager. Um, they either lose paperwork, um, work orders were misplaced, work order was never put in, or work, over, work orders were never done. And um, some of the crisis that we were going through was ceiling leakage, windows, like windows were not put in right, Um, heaters were not working properly, Um, there was space between the windows and the window frames, so air would come in, and in the winter, we'll have the heater, the heat will come out, so there was like no way to keep the house warm or the coat out. So how did you then, um, who did you work with to take on this landlord who didn't even live in the state of Connecticut? 
Um, well, we went to a meeting one day with a, a property manager that we were meeting, and at that meeting, in the flyer, it said properly said that we were going to meet the landlord. Mind you, I lived there for five years, and I never met him personally. I never sat down with him. I never said hi, shook his hand. I'm one of your tenants. I never sat there personally with him. But from there, um, we had a disagreement of how everything was going on, and we just looked at it. There was like four other tenant leaders that I work with. We were all in the same meeting. I never knew them. I never met them. So that first meeting that we had was actually the first time we met each other. And when we came out of the meeting, we discussed about what we were going to do, and we just acted on our own, and we just made meetings after meetings. Mind you, some of us graduated, some of us had no class of education, so we just took it on our own and we learned on our own. Google was our best friend. If you needed something, Google had the answer. Uh, you were able to, you were so successful in this campaign, HUD actually took away this landlord's sec- Section 8 voucher funding. Uh, Aaron Kempel is in studio with me, Executive Director of the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Is this a rare situation where tenants are able to get this kind of recourse, but they now have to still find a place to live? It's very rare that um, that tenants are able to do this on their own. We're aware of situations in New London and, and Bridgeport where there are equally bad conditions, but the tenants were not able to get the landlord to, or get HUD or anybody else to pay as much attention without the assistance of an attorney or someone like that. And so I think what they've done is really impressive. It got HUD's attention, which is very difficult to do. But as you say, the result is not fixing the units. So we're going to lose the units and the community that everybody has in the Clay Arsenal area. And they're now all being forced to move to other places, which hopefully will get them into better housing and maybe better neighborhoods, but will lose something as well. Uh, Malagros, before we head to break, uh, tell us about your situation. Have you found a new place to live? Um, no, I haven't found any place to live yet. Um, I work, so I do 62 hours a week, and I don't have enough time to sit and browse and look for an apartment. Now we have to designate to live out of Hartford just to see if we can find a proper house, a proper apartment to move into, and it's very difficult. Milagros Ortiz, a former resident of the Clay Arsenal apartment, speaking back in 2018 about their successful fight against an absentee landlord. In January of this year, Connecticut State Attorney General William Tong announced a civil investigation into that landlord, Emmanuel Koo. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.